Ranch, and the book I wrote is Two Breaths, One Step, Hiking Across the Himalayas. It's an adventure memoir. This is also Eva Monte Alegre, and my book is Body on the Back Lot, and it's the first in the Red Carpet Noir series featuring Joan Lambert. Ava, as we were talking about just a few minutes ago before the show, I um, I understand that you're an artist, a painter, and uh, which I also do in addition to writing. And I was um, looking into your work and I was captivated by this series you did called The Bodies of Water, which uh, caught my attention because I, I also work with imagery from water and like any other artist come with up with very different images than you know any we all each do but um i i just thought that was really interesting so um i'm i'm interested about uh how and why you picked this as a theme yes well you know water is such a powerful aspect of our existence and um i think in my work the first time i was working with it in the series bodies of water, um, I was really focusing on the emotional aspects of it. And I think that uh, when we just look at water, uh, whether it's an ocean or a lake or a river, you know, we experience an emotional, visceral reaction and I think it is a very strong symbol um, of life because that's what it creates. Um, of course, it's in combination with uh, so many other elements, but you know, really um, that's what they're always searching for when they go on other planets is for water as a sign of life. Mm -hmm. And um, even in my marriage ceremony, with my husband, the first thing we did was sit from a bowl of water and say, water is life. And it's just uh, such a, a beautiful and simple ritual and a wonderful acknowledgement. So yeah, it's the emotional thing. But I think as I, I develop that series, the water as a symbol of the subconscious also started to overtake me like a tsunami <laughs> and so, <laughs> so then I started uh, working with that in mind and so you know it's just so powerful on a union level but even in your book when there's an avalanche that's essentially water <laughs> <laughs> yes that's right and I remember your, in your book, you saying how powerful that was for you to witness. Yes. And, and actually, as I'm, I'm thinking here, I, I didn't really draw this connection, but the water is also very present when you come across, you're hiking and you come across the prayer wheels. Mm -hmm. And they would often situate a prayer wheel on a stream. And so the stream would spin it it's like a um a water wheel almost it would cause the prayer wheel to spin around and that symbol uh, it, there was no function at all this wasn't for power the sole purpose of it was to release the prayers 
inside mm -hmm. the prayer wheel across the landscape. Oh, that's so beautiful. It's very beautiful. And so the water was the medium through which to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what I do think is interesting um, about the character in your book and um, my character and Body on the Back Lot is that they are both so strong. And um, I know we're talking about you, uh, and, and my character is fictitious. Though many of my friends say, oh, that character is you. Of course, <laughs> it, of course it's not me, exactly. But what I thought was interesting about both these characters is that they are willing to face a little hardship, if that's what's required, you know. They are willing to endure things that might not be so pleasant in order to get to the truth or the essence or the beauty of something. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I, I'd say that's exactly true. Um, I mean, for me, since my book was a memoir, it was pretty straightforward. But I wondered if you had any, um, if you were debating at all whether your main character would be a female lead character or whether it would be a male or did did the female character of um joan did she just come to you just arise to you yes she she was never male and i think that her issues like uh you know this was before the me too movement they were issues that uh i felt very strongly about and um certainly there are men and are very many men in her life who are concerned about those issues as well, but she's very much like an Artemis character. She's very earthy and in love with the animals and the children, and she wants to be a protector of the women and men too, who are injured or um, suffer from injustice. But uh, I, I do see a parallel because a lot of issues came up that were of import in your book as well. Relating to the character, you mean? Well, and the things that she witnessed. Right, the things she had to do. And the things she was concerned about, like uh, inequality, like when the Sherpa, Sherpas were injured from frostbite and did not receive medical care. Yes, it was... It was um, well, it was quite overwhelming. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm having great fun uh, reading your book. I, I uh, love mysteries, so I'm halfway through your book and I cannot put it down. Which, as I always say, a good book totally disrupts my life. I stay up really late and get up really early. Yeah. So I'm so excited to uh, find out what happens. <laughs> Well, good, good. That's it, what it, you're supposed to feel. <laughs> I know, and I want to know what happens. I want to know. I want more, so definitely you need to keep writing here. Well, um, I'm curious. Uh, uh, I'm thinking about, I mean, your book, as you said, is fiction. So in terms of my book, um, a memoir, I it surprised me. I didn't necessarily know this would happen. But there was a certain degree of reliving my experience in incredible detail as I was writing it. Um, I could see things, taste things. So I wondered, um, 
I haven't written fic a fiction book, and I wondered if in creating fiction, if you actually need to put yourself into the character, or do the characters more come to you and tell you? Well, I'm trying to understand how that works. To be completely honest, even though it's not a, a memoir, and I'm not recreating things, I deeply experience the story. And it is as if I'm living in another world, even when I'm not writing. <laughs> even, when you're, even when you're not writing. Oh, that's right. When I go out in the world, Joan is with me. I'm oh. feeling Joan's emotions, how she feels about whatever it is I'm writing about. And, and I'm thinking about, you know, how she's going to solve her problems. Because even though I do have uh, a very strong idea in my mind what my story is, it just never ends up like that. <laughs> it's always something, uh, it takes a turn that I never expected. And I think it is because I live with the characters. And there are some exceptionally scary characters in Body on the Backlot. I don't know if you've met them yet, but you will. And uh, when I was writing those characters, I was so frightened. I would sit at my... Uh, <laughs> desk and make these sounds, you know, like a frightened person. And my husband would come in the room and go, what's going on? What's wrong? And I'd say, oh, I'm just writing a scary scene. <laughs> you know, and he'd go, okay. <laughs> but, you know, I, it, if you're writing about characters that are frightening, if you're writing about um, people who are brutal or murderous, this is not a light subject. I know people do cozies and they do uh, lighter pieces, but usually those stories don't have a lot of uh, blood or violence. They're they're sort of sweet and suspenseful. And and my stories are dark and they have you know a hard bite to them. Uh, some people call them hard boiled. Uh, some people direct you know quote me directly and say, oh yeah, it's noir, because I see them as noir. And, you know, there's always a femme fatale. And um, even though I do write about a glamorous aspect of our society, celebrity, Hollywood, the red carpet, or, or you know, anything where a person is famous and is getting a lot of attention, because almost anything can end up on uh, television these days. And then also we have the internet as well as another venue that we didn't used to have. But anyway, the point being that uh, when you're doing that glamorous stuff, well, you know, there's a lot of people that uh, are on the scene of creating that glamour. There's all kinds of makeup and stylists and costumes and set and story writers and directors and producers. I mean, it's like pretty much an army of people. And that, that's what I like about the Red Carpet Noir series is that it's a, a tapestry of many different characters from every kind of social strata of every ethnic background. And so I get to have a lot of characters and that's what I find uh, very gratifying. But the, the red carpet aspect, the Hollywood notion, what it does is it amplifies everything. It puts a spotlight on it. And so that's why I chose that as my series. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
But as far as living it, yes, I live it. And it's like I'm in a deep meditation or like a semi-trance when I'm writing. And so I'm writing all the time. I'm not really writing only when I'm sitting at my desk. It's, it, I live in that world. Hmm. It sounds like when one is painting almost. Mm-hmm. So you lived in your world. And uh, I noticed right away in your memoir that there was an element of danger from the beginning. Yes, yes. Starting um, with the assassin bug. <laughs> yes, yes, I know. So I think I think there's, I guess a certain amount of danger comes or may come when one is adventuresome in one's life. Well, now what does this assassin bug look like? Do you know? Yeah, I do. I actually looked it up when I was bit by it. It looks kind of like a unicorn. It's got this, like, coming out of its head. It's got this, like, point, uh, 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 like a unicorn, like a horn. And it just, I, I think, uh, this was many years ago, but I think i think that's what it looked like. And it just jabs you. Oh, <laughs> that, was, that was so horrifying. And Part of the reason I found found it horrifying is because I live up on top of a mountain. And even though I'm just, you know, 45 minutes from Los Angeles, it can seem uh, remote. And if your car doesn't work, then it's a little difficult to get anywhere. And it does take about 45 minutes to get to medical attention if you needed an emergency room. So if you got bit by a rattlesnake or, you know, some other kind of neurotoxic type insect or reptile you know you have about 45 minutes to get somewhere before you die from some of those bites so you know you do have that feeling of danger and I did get bit by a spider when my husband was out of town for his father's funeral and um I I'm kind of a dummy and at first I, I was like, oh, you know, it'll go away. Similar to your character saying, oh, it's kind of like a mosquito bite, <laughs> you know? And then it just got worse and worse until it was on my back hip to where I was almost paralyzed and I was feeling pain in my whole leg. So I called my mother who did at the time live in the backwoods of Missouri in the Ozarks in Rockaway Beach, which is where my character is from, the Ozarks. Um, so a little bit of it is based on reality. And I called my mom because she knows everything. She knows how to go mushroom hunting. She knows how to do all these wonderful things. I said, Mom, you know, I think I got bit by a spider. She said, get your neighbor to come over and, and shoot you with a taser. <laughs> she shoot you with the taser yeah she said that that was the only when i described it to her she said the only thing that helped her is when she went to the doctor and the doctor <laughs> the doctor shot her with a taser well that's actually now that i'm thinking about it i was it was a long time ago i was younger and my um yeah actually i didn't look it up i remember my mother looked it up and sent me a photograph of it oh <laughs> she was so curious yeah, well, mothers are good for that. They'll, they'll go the extra mile. So anyway, I had a, a, a neighbor. I always did think he was sort of sadistic. But anyway, I knew he had a taser. So I asked him to come over and, and shoot the spider bite with the taser. And so, yeah, that worked for about, uh, I don't know, I think it was seven days, you know, a week. 
<laughs> and I, I, th I thought it was fine and everything was great. And I was just, and then I came back again. So I asked him to come again. And I said, you know, give it a high voltage. And so he did. And I think I saw him laughing. But anyway, he might have been laughing with nervousness. I don't know. But anyway, so then that one lasted about 10 days. And then it came back again. And I said, okay, I'm just going to go emergency and they had to cut a big hole and you know it was like a big deal but that, so when you were telling that story in your memoir i was going oh no you know when you said it well i guess that was your lymph gland that blew up like a golf ball right yeah yeah which makes sense so you lift the lymph glands trying to take the poisons out of your body right toxins yeah it's uh yeah very scary and then the, uh, right away, or it seemed right away to me, uh, then you had some complications with a medication. <laughs> yes, I did. Yes, that's exactly what happened. Um, yeah, I've just found when you travel abroad, you know, frankly, so many uh, doctors in the United States, I mean, we just, they just haven't seen so many of these illnesses in, in their generation, whether it's... Um, uh, just all the you know ones we just haven't had that have gotten eradicated polio, smallpox, et cetera, and or even things like typhoid, you know, which just aren't as common as they used to be. Anyway, so I just find that you can get all these mysterious things in developing countries or you know out of the way places that just either go unnoticed a long time here or just aren't recognized for what they are. But yes, in this particular example, I was prescribed some medication for malaria, anti-malaria prevention. And um, I, I found out when I was in, um, I don't know where, if I was in Europe or Asia, but I found out this particular medicine had been outlawed in, in Europe for over 10 years because there were so many side effects for it. And um, my particular doctor in the United States didn't know that. Well, you know, I'm afraid that doesn't surprise me about American medicine. But I will say that uh, the reason you suffered all these inconveniences <laughs> was so that you could experience the beauty of the Himalayas, right? <laughs> well, I don't know. I would like to think one could experience the beauty without necessarily having to have those setbacks. But, you know, that's there's always setbacks. Otherwise, I say, why would we be here? So... Yeah, I mean, there was no turning back. So it was a matter of just how can I keep moving forward? So what do you think was the most beautiful experience you had there? Well, I'm so, um, let's see, I, I, I'm so deeply affected by my environment. And I think just the extreme clarity of uh, that's really why I love the high altitudes. The air just has a clarity about it that is very different than lower elevations. Everything is everything's reduced to only the essential. It's very minimal. Um, it's very uh, there's a lot of clarity, sharpness. You know, I mean, I love foggy days too, but there's something about that landscape that um, really speaks to me. And it has to do with light. And it has, it has a lot to do with light, which is, as we started this conversation, which is what is what my paintings are about, and certainly what that um, 
series that of my work that's called The Water's Edge is about. Um, so I'm going to say it was, you know, but that's really, it wasn't just the landscape. It's really fine, finely interwoven with the, um, just the magical culture of a very intact uh, culture that reveres all forms of life and looks at the world in such a radically different way than I had been used to. Ah, mm -hmm. well, I do remember you did describe something about being in the fog and you visited a monastery and they had a, like a, a shower wooden hut. Yeah, that yeah. was lit by well, I totally went with you there. That was lit by candlelight, and that when you let the water flow over you, you felt like you were in heaven. Well, I know that feeling, you know, when you you just ache for a lovely hot bath, you know. And uh, I do remember when I read that passage, the idea of taking that bath in the candlelight in a wooden hut in the fog <laughs> it's just like wow you know i was i was really uh, i myself was basking in the timelessness of that moment you know i i was really there like i really got it and it does seem like um it's there are those moments and i try to put them in my book as well those moments it's maybe not the most dramatic moment in your story, but those moments of quiet and uh, a feeling of simple peace. And fog does tend to create that because it kind of puts a soft blanket over. Yeah, it slows us down. Yeah, and, it, and the way it moves so gently. Well, you really paid attention to lots of detail. Yeah, something that was so, you're right, something that was so ordinary yes uh became quite extraordinary yes yeah. and so i you know i try to have some moments like that too in my book where the parrots come and visit joan in her backyard and they swing up and down on the banana leaves you know things like that and in the midst of an la experience and all that horror of uh, you know crime and the crimes are even though they're not memoirs the crimes are are based on true crimes things that really do happen and um as i say i wrote this before the me too movement and so when i um was sharing with friends some of the things that happened in my book like there's a group of women being held captive or that uh <laughs> there were people on Hollywood involved in cults. People would go, oh, Ava, that's not plausible. <laughs> they said that to me. And then I'm like, whoa, I want to call them up on the phone and go, hey, have you seen the news? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, you know, the drugging of, you know, more than one person and things like that, you know. And so uh, in the midst of all of that drama and what I experience is horror, you know, I like to have some moments of, you know, simple joy. Hmm. Mm -hmm. You get to be just a, a human being. Hmm. And I think a lot of your trek was about being in relationship with your humanity. 
honoring your own humanity and your desires, your spiritual desires. Your, but they weren't just spiritual. They were physical, too. They were sensual. That's a very, very good way to put it. You know, that's so interesting. I was thinking about what you just said of something that you literally imagined uh, maybe in your mind. And then your friend said, oh, this couldn't happen. And then the next week, you know, it's on the front page of the news. Because <laughs> yeah. um, I've, I've, that's an experience I often have in my painting. I just, it was just interesting to hear you say that. You know, let's say you're just working on a piece and for whatever reason, I always say the paintings tell you what they want and the sky wants to be yellow. Mm -hmm. And then you think, well, I can't possibly have a yellow sky. Skies are blue. Mm -hmm. whatever it is and then inevitably within a week or two I'm out doing something and I see it and yeah. I, I, it's like almost impossible for me to make something up <laughs> yes I think there's something to that it is and I it's probably there all the time but maybe we don't we don't notice it but well I do think there is a um we're not conscious of it but there is a shared consciousness and, you know, some people click into it more than others. And with that, I do think there is an aspect, and it might not be crystal clear, but I do think there is an aspect of that shared consciousness that has to do with premonition or where you have a hunch about things or where you sense ahead of time. And I've often thought, this is just my own personal theory, <laughs> I have often thought that it was that this premonition or this knowingness just comes from the synapses in the brain figuring out things in the subconscious and then once in a while you click into that or it it meets with your conscious mind in a conversation and then you get to to know what your brain has been up to all this time figuring out all, all the little tiny uh details and clues and I guess that's why I'm a a mystery writer is because my brain works like that or I experience my brain working like that. So then the the uh, crime fiction, you know, that is a, a natural for me because it's sort of like how my brain thinks already. Hmm. Hmm. The, what happens when you're telling the, that story is the truth gets revealed. There is an unveiling of the truth. Well, the truth was always there all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's just a matter of the people or your investigator becoming acquainted with what the truth is. Mm -hmm. And often it's only because they're extremely determined that they ever get to, you know, discover that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm so looking forward to um, finishing the book and I, I hope there's more. Oh, yeah, there's more. I'm working on something right now and I'm going to have to go hang out with my... Uh, detective friends and you know the real crime world which you know can be difficult but it is essential to telling you know that sort of story accurately and um i have people i'm going to be working with and doing research with but how about you you you'll be taking more travails right you'll be going on more oh i constantly am <laughs> This, this one was quite some time ago, but uh, yeah, I've got some ideas of things coming up. So that's, uh, yeah, there's always something on the horizon. Okay. Well, um, I hope I get to meet you in person sometime. Where do you live? Well, 
Uh, I live um, just north of San Francisco, and I grew up uh, right very near to where you are. I grew up in the Palisades, Pacific oh, Palisades. Yeah, yeah so, I'm in Topanga, Malibu area. I'm very familiar with Topanga. I used to go there. I had some of my best childhood friend lived there. Oh, that's beautiful. I actually live in an area very much like where you live. It's it's in the um, open kind of country just north of San Francisco. And I, I uh, the landscape here is very much like Topanga. It's that dry Mediterranean, and I border hundreds of thousands of acres of open space. Oh, see, isn't that the best? <laughs> I always say if you can't own it, you got to at least live next to it. Exactly, and that's, that's what I'm doing. And the, the, what you look at every morning affects you. Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes more than I'd like. But yeah, every day I feel like I'm walking out into a painting. It's been a joy to, to meet you via the phone. And uh, I hope someday we can connect in person. I do too. I hope that happens. Okay. So this um, has been Ava Montealegre with Body on the Back Lot and Sylvia Varange with Two Breaths, One Step, Hiking Across the Himalayas. <laughs>